Well, it's hard to believe, but we started the Christmas season. Or is it the Christmas rush, or the Christmas dash, or the hectic of the holiday? Whatever it is to you, it started. And today is already December 7th, another important day in our country's history. This is Pearl Harbor Day. As our president said, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a day that will live in infamy. Today we're going to start the Christmas season and some messages. I want to share something I've never shared before in, in all of my ministry, and the Lord just recently kind of brought it to my attention. I want to talk about the forgotten chapter of Christmas. The forgotten chapter of Christmas. You know, we get into the Christmas time, and we're going to be those of us who are people of faith, and, and let me really encourage you to keep Christ in Christmas. Amen? Keep it there with our children and keep it there with our grandchildren and everyone we can. But we're going to be thinking about that very familiar Christmas story. We're going to be thinking about Mary and Joseph and, and the baby Jesus in the manger and the angels and the shepherd and the wise men and all these familiar parts of Christmas that we celebrate over and over again. But there's a chapter that we often neglect that's really important to the story of Christmas. And that's the chapter, Matthew chapter 1. The first gospel in the New Testament. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And right off the bat, Matthew in chapter 1 starts with that familiar yet kind of unsavory and, and unexciting chapter that says, and so and so gave birth to so-and-so, and so-and-so gave birth to so-and-so. If you have not King James, it's so-and-so begat so-and-so, and he begat so-and-so, and he begat so-and-so, and he begat a long list of one after another. And, you know, in our Bible reading, oftentimes we get to the book of Matthew, and we just look at that first chapter and go, okay, I'm, I'm by this one. I can't, I don't even, I can't pronounce all those names. And we just kind of blow through it. That chapter that lists the genealogy of Jesus Christ of how he came to be born. Now, to us, in this, our day, you know, we just kind of blow through that part of the Bible. But back when this book was written, and to whom this book was written, remember, the different Gospels have different audiences that they were written to. Matthew, the first one, was written particularly to the Jewish people of that day. Luke was written uh, particularly to the Gentile people of that day. Mark was to the Romans, and John was a general gospel. It was a universal gospel to all people. But Matthew was written to the Jewish people. And Jewish people loved genealogies. They played a very important part in the Jewish culture, a very important part in the Jewish faith, their worship system. They were very interested in genealogies. For example, whenever land was bought or sold, the gene genealogical records were always consulted to determine the right of ownership. Remember, God had given the Israelites the promised land we know today as Israel, as, as Palestine. But each tribe had their own promised section of that. And so when someone was buying property, you just couldn't lay down the money and buy a piece of property. You had to prove through your genealogical records that you were a part of that tribe. Because only people in that tribe could own that part of the, of the country. And so it was very important in the sale of property. It was very important in determining the priesthood in, in Israel, in the Jewish faith. Not just anybody could become a priest. You had to be of a certain bloodline to be a priest in Israel. You had to come from the line of Levi. 
And, and, and no one else could be a priest. You, you just couldn't say, hey, one day I felt the call of God and he wants me to enter the ministry. No, not in Israel. You had to, have, you had to be a member of that bloodline. It was also important because it was determining, in, in determining the Jewish record of, of ancestry, of where you really came from. That's why Mary, as, as according to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and 3 and 4, that's why Mary had to take that long, arduous journey from Nazareth, the city they lived in, to Bethlehem. Because why? Because Augustus, Caesar Augustus, had issued a, a decree through the Roman Empire that he wanted a, an entire census to be taken of the entire empire. And so they had to go back to their ancestral city of origin, and for Joseph... Being in the line of David, that had took them back to Bethlehem. So that's why Mary had to make that journey nine months pregnant back to Bethlehem to have her baby. Genealogy was also important in maintaining and establishing the royal line. Kind of like it is today in countries who still have monarchies. They trace it very carefully. Who is eligible to be royalty? So... Why is this forgotten chapter so important today? Why is it so important for us? Well, as we said, it establishes Jesus as part of the royal line of David. In the book of Jeremiah, among many other places in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that the Messiah would come from the line of David. Jeremiah 23, verse 5, 6 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. Notice that that word branch is capitalized. Not talking about, about figurative of a, of a branch, but of, of a person. It says, A king, again capitalized, shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which he will be called the Lord of Righteousness. See, he was talking about God's Messiah that God was going to send into the world. The Savior of the world. The one who would be the only righteous person who's ever lived. And so it was very important. And so right off the bat, Matthew 1, 1 says, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, back in, when this was written, and remember, this is written to Jewish people specifically. It had to start here. Because the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, as the other Gospels are, they're a biography of the life and the teachings of Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah. And so the Jewish people, right off the bat, this is how it had to start for Jewish people. You had to prove that he had the right to be Messiah because Messiah had to come from the royal line. But... There's another reason that's more apropos to you and me today. This is the one, although it's important even for us to know that Jesus came from the right line. He could be Messiah. But more so for you and me, Jesus' genealogy is a chronicle of the grace of God. It tells us of God's character. And it impacts every one of us here today. Say, how? Well, that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. When you look at this genealogy, something's very out of place. Now, we probably wouldn't notice it today, but I guarantee you, the people of the first century, as they were reading this gospel by Matthew, 
especially if they were Jewish, their eyes lit up. And they were, they were talking about this. And what was that? Within this genealogy, the seemingly endless name of begat and begat, begat, he begat her, him and he begat, are the inclusion of five women's names. Now, one was Mary, Jesus' mother. We can naturally understand that. But there were four other women's names in this genealogy, unheard of in that day. This was a man's world. Uh, women, they had their place in culture, and they had their place in society, and it was certainly not the place of women in our day, in our culture. And, and to include a woman's name in the genealogy of something as important as this, they, they must have been a gas back then. Yeah, I mean, it must have been the stuff of rumors and, and the stuff of, of intrigue and drama back in that day. But not only that, four of the five women would have really raised an eyebrow. One of the women's name was Tamar. Matthew 1, 3, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, Tamar's story is found in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Tamar is married to one of the sons of Judah, who, of course, was one of the sons, one of the twelve sons of Jacob. And so Judah arranges for his son, heir, to, to marry this Gentile woman, Tamar. But the Bible says that heir does wicked in the eyes of the Lord, and so God takes his life. So according to Jewish custom and, and tradition and Jewish law, then the widow of the older brother then would be passed on to the next brother to sire children with. So that the, the first, the, the, the son who died early would not be left in their minds fatherless. And so, that's what Judah did. Judah gave Tamar to his second son, Onan. But the Bible says Onan did what was wicked in the Lord's eyes and he died too. And so now, he's only got one son left, his son Shelah, but, but he's so young that, that he can't marry him off yet. So he says this to Tamar. He says, listen, he says, you go back and live in your, under the safety of your father's house. You go back home to where you came from and, and live under that house. And, and when my son Shelah is grown and old enough, then, then we'll get you together and so we can carry on the line of Er and the line of Onan through Shelah. But in his mind, he's thinking, I don't want to give this woman. I mean, he's looking at her like some kind of a black widow. She's a black woman, two sons down because of this woman. So he's thinking of he's going to put her away, and that's the end of the story. And for sure, that's what happened. A long period of time passed. And Sheila had grown up to be a man, but still no, no thought of Tamar. So one day, Tamar picks up that <clears throat> Judah is going to go up to Timnath, another city to check on his sheep that were being sheared. And so she concocts an idea, and here's what she does. She takes off her widow clothes, and she adorns herself as a shrine prostitute. And she's along the road and sees Judah coming, and Judah turns to her as a prostitute, and, and he wants to have a deal. He, 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 he proposes to her that they have a little session. And so she says, well, what will, and she's disguised. He doesn't know who it is. He says, well, what will you give me? She says to him, what will you give me? He says, I'll send a goat to you. I guess that was the going price for prostitution. I'll send you a goat. 
And she says, well, how do I know that you'll, you'll carry up your end of the bargain? Leave with me something to prove, a pledge that you'll, you'll, you'll honor your word. So he said, well, what would you have me leave with you? And she said, well, leave your, your seal, that was the seal they would sign covenants with, and the cord that it's, it's, it's attached to, which hung around its neck, and your staff, leave that with me. And so he said, no problem, okay. So he gives her the stuff, they go in, do the deed, and later on, he sends a servant with the goat. And so the servant says, where's that temple prostitute, that shrine prostitute that's hanging out over there? And they said, there's never been any shrine prostitutes hanging out around here. And so the servant goes back, and now he's humiliated. He says, don't tell anybody about this so it doesn't bring shame on our family. Well, Tamar is pregnant now by Judah. And later on, as she's in processing her pregnancy, a servant comes back to Judah and says, Tamar, that, that daughter-in-law of yours became a prostitute, and she's pregnant. And Judah is enraged. He says, you bring her back here and we'll burn her. She deserves death. And so that's what they do. They go back and they get Tamar and they bring her to Judah. And, they, and Judah's about ready to put her to death. When she brings out those things, she goes, the man whose these items are is the father of the baby inside me. And he recognized it was his staff and his seal and his cord. And so he was shamed before his household for, for doing such a horrible thing. And so finally she came to live under the protection of his house and gave birth to twins, Perez and Zerah. Think about it. Here is a woman, Tamar, in the royal line of the Messiah, who presented herself as a prostitute. To her own father-in-law. Then there's another woman in Matthew 1.5 says Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now Rahab's story is found in the Old Testament book of Joshua chapter 2. Remember that Moses had sent spies into the land once they came out of, of, out of Egypt, out of 430 years of captivity, and, and now God says go into the land, but Ten of the twelve spies come back and they give a bad report. And so the people murmur and all that. And God curses that generation to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Well, now that, that generation has all died out. And now Joshua has taken the place of Moses. And he's getting ready to lead the people into the promised land. And so he sends some spies, two of them, to go spy out the city of Jericho. That's the first battle they're going to have when they get in the land. So the spies go to Jericho. And they seek shelter in the house of a prostitute named Rahab. Now, I, I don't know what all was involved in this, whether after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness they were up to no good. But it would make perfect sense, you know, going to a house of a, of a prostitute because men will become seen coming and going all day long there. But anyhow, the king gets word of Jericho that these guys are there. So he goes to the house of Rahab and he says, bring out those men that came here. And she tells the king, well, yeah, there were some men here, but I didn't know they were from Israelites. I didn't know who they were. And, and they left. And, oh, matter of fact, they were going to go leave the city at dusk. So, so go chase them. They probably just got out of the city. Go send your men. Catch those guys. And so the king and there's the, the, the police go chasing on a wild goose chick. In the meantime, she's hidden those spies up on the roof of her house. And she's put a, 
a bunch of flax over to cover them up. So later she goes up and she says to them, We know who you are. And we've heard the stories of how God brought you out of Egypt, how God parted the Red Sea. She said, we're, we're fearful. So she makes a deal with the spies. She goes, listen, I'll pro- I've protected you. I've saved your lives. Now, I want your oath that when you attack this city, me and my family will live. And so, so they did. They made an oath. They told her, you tie a scarlet cord in the window of your house. And she lived right on the wall, the outer wall of the city. And so they, she lowered down those two spies with a rope out of the wall later on early in the morning so they wouldn't get caught. But here's Rahab in the line. She's a prostitute in the royal line of the Messiah. Then there's a third woman. Her name is Ruth. Matthew 1.5. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, she has an entire book dedicated to her in the Old Testament. You know that there are two women who have entire books dedicated to her? They're written by them. They are the book of Ruth and the book of Esther, both Old Testament books. And Ruth, as a person, is a person of integrity. And you read her story, and and you just see a a, a phenomenal woman, a, a woman of true integrity. But in her story, she is a Moabite. Two Hebrews, Amalek and Naomi, live in Israel, undergo a famine in Israel. Things are really bad, really hard. So they move, and, and they go to the land of Moab. Now, now what's the land of Moab, and what, what's, so, what's so interesting about this? Well, remember Lot? Remember the story we talked about? The story of Lot? And the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and after he fled Sodom and Gomorrah, he went to a cave, and his two daughters got him drunk on different nights, and they went in, and they, they slept with their own father. And so they gave birth to two incestuous sons. One's name was Ammon, and one's name was Moab. And so now you have the father of the Ammonites and the father of the Moabites, who the Jews disdained. They looked down on them, oh, those incestuous people, the offspring of, oh, it was horrible what those girls did to their father. So Ruth, and as you look through this book, Ruth is always Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth from Moab. And the story is that Amalek and and Naomi go, and they live there, and they have two sons, and so they marry their sons off to two Moabite women. One is Ophrah, like Ophrah Winfrey, and the other is Ruth. Well, it comes to pass not too long that both those sons die. And, in fact, Amalek dies too. Naomi's husband dies. And so you've got these three widow women all living together. And Naomi hears that now the Lord has brought favor back on the land of Israel. So she wants to go back to Israel, but she's a widow and she's got no future and she's too old to get married again and all that. And so she says to her daughters-in-law, Ruth and, and Ophrah, she goes, you guys go back to your people. You, you'll, you'll have a better chance of survival. You go back to your father's house. They'll take care of you there. I, I've got to go it alone here. And so Ophrah does, and she goes back to her people. But Ruth, and this is where you see her stunning character. She says, no, I'm not leaving you. Your fate is my fate. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And she hangs in there and stays with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Now, the rest of the story is a beautiful love story. So if you want to read a nice love story, read the Old Testament book of Ruth. 
But the point is, over and over again, you'll see Ruth, the Moabitess. See, in fact, when they went back to, to Bethlehem, their city of origin, it, it, the Bible says people were talking about it. There was a big rumor about it. Is this Naomi back? And who is this Moabitess woman with her? See, they disdained her. Then a fourth woman is Bathsheba, who's not mentioned by name, but there's no mistake of who it is. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, it says, And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And we just recently went through the whole story of David and Bathsheba. How David had been walking on the rooftop of his palace, and he sees her bathing, and he has her brought to him, and, and they commit adultery together. And she becomes pregnant. Ultimately, that first son that is born dies. The Lord takes the life of that son because of the sin. And then blesses them with a second son, Solomon, who becomes the heir, who becomes the next king of Israel. But again, look at these four women who are mentioned in the royal line of the Messiah, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Tamar, incestuous, immoral, feigned prostitution, sold her body to her own father-in-law. You got Rahab, another prostitute, a lying, a deceiver, a traitor to her own people, a Canaanite woman coming from that, that cursed son of, 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 of Noah, cursed grandson Canaan. Again, to the Jewish people. I mean, God had ordered the Jewish people when they came out of Israel to, to eradicate the Canaanites, to destroy every one of them. They were so hated by the Jews. And you got Ruth, Moabitess. Oh, what a scandal it must have been reading that name in the genealogy of Jesus. That Moabitess, that, that daughter of incest. Bathsheba. Now, why would God include such sordid women in the royal line of his son? Why would God do that? And don't you know that the Jewish people reading Matthew for the very first time were they, they couldn't believe what they were reading. Why would God do that? The inclusion of these four women opens an amazing window into the true character of God. And not only the women. If you think I'm picking on the women today, understand that if you would go through that, that line, the men's side of it, you see Abraham, who's a triple liar, and you see David, who's a murderer and an adulterer, and you see Manasseh, who's like the most wicked king that ever reigned in, in Israel and Judah. I mean, you talk about a dysfunctional family. This was the dysfunctional family of dysfunctional families. Why would God send his son through that kind of family? 
Well, it's an enormous window that tells us who God really is. Job got it. That suffering servant of the Old Testament. In Job chapter 5, verse 11, it says, The lowly he, God, sets on high. And those who mourn are lifted to safety. Psalm 138, verse 6, says, Though the Lord is on high, He looks upon the lowly, but the proud He knows from afar. In other words, although God is omnipotent, although God is omniscient, although God is omnipresent, although God lives in the splendor, the glory of heaven, the heavenly realm, God is absolutely holy and pure. You know what it says? It says, you know who he's looking at? He's looking at the lowly of life. He's looking at the prostitutes. He's looking at the drug addicts. He's looking at the adulterers. He's looking at the murderers. He says, the proud, the self-righteous. Like in the New Testament, the self-righteous man who was praying in the temple and he saw a publican, he saw a tax collector and he began to move over and he prayed, God, I'm thankful that I'm not like that guy. See, Scripture says that God's not at all impressed with the self-righteous, the pious, the religious, who really have no heart for God. Paul brings it kind of closer to us in his first letter to believers in the city of Corinth and Macedonia. He reminds them of this. He says, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, he says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. In other words, he says, think of who you were when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. He, he, said, he said, think of who you were. He said, not many of you were wise by human standards, not many of you had a string of diplomas after your name. Not many of you were invited to, to be on all the, 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 the forums and the board of directors and all that. You know, you, you, that wasn't you. He said, not many were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. That doesn't say that, that you can't be wise and you can't be one of the respected wise of the world. And be a Christian, yeah, you can. But he said, not many of us were. And isn't that truth of you? Isn't that true of me? I trusted Jesus Christ when I was nine years old. Son of a truck driver. Son of a firefighter. Son of a normal housewife of that day. Blue-collar community. Steel City. What was your story? He said, think about it. There was nothing attractive about me. A little nine-year-old boy from a blue-collar family. Maybe as you think about yourself, you say, you know, there was really nothing that special about me either. But look what he goes on to say. He says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world 
so that no one could boast before him. What does that mean? Oh, listen, this might be the most glorious message of the whole story of Christmas, and we usually just blow by it because this is the forgotten chapter of Christmas. You know what the lesson of Matthew chapter 1 is? To you and to me, today, right now? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are exactly the kind of person God is looking for to continue His work. He's not looking for the scholar. He's not looking for the rich. He's not looking for the influential in society. He's looking for the lowly. He's looking for the school teacher. He's looking for the auto mechanic. He's looking for the waitress. He's looking for the register operator. He's looking for whatever we are in life. He's looking for people who have a heart for Him, no matter what their life story has been, no matter what their life situation is. He says, that's who I'm looking for. That's the man I can use. That's the woman I can use. The man, the woman who is willing to be used by me. And I'll take that woman who used to be a prostitute. I'll I'll take that man who's an adulterer. I'll take that murderer. I'll take that thief. And if they'll give their heart to me, you watch what I'll do with them. And you watch how I will use him. You watch how I will use her in unimaginable ways for the advancement of my kingdom. See, and no matter where you're at right now in life, you are that man. You are that woman. You might not be special at work. You might not even hold a place of honor within your extended family. But as a member of the family of God, you're exactly the man. You're exactly the woman that God wants to use to His glory. Know what it means, though? Maybe for someone else here today who's never trusted Jesus Christ as his or her Savior. The story of the forgotten chapter of Christmas is this. You are exactly the kind of person that Jesus came to save. You're exactly the person. You say, but, but, but Pete, I'm a, I'm a prostitute. I've got this whole thing going on the side nobody knows about. You're exactly the person God came to save. Oh, but Pete, you, you don't know. I'm, I'm an addict. I'm, I'm a drug addict. I'm an alcoholic. God, God. No, you're exactly the person Jesus came to save. Yeah, but you don't understand. I, I'm, I'm, I don't know what you've done. But I know this. First Timothy 1.15 declares, Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners. And Paul, who we look at today as one of the greatest Christians who ever lived, he finishes that statement by saying this, Of whom I'm the worst. I'm the worst. Oh, how many of us feel that way? I'm the worst. I'm the lowest. Listen, here's the good news. You, in God's eyes, are exactly the men, exactly the women, 
that he wants to use for his glory. And he, if you just be willing and you surrender your life as a believer, you surrender your soul as a, as a, a non-believer, listen to me, God will do with your life unimaginable things. You imagine Tamar ever thought that she would be in the royal line of the Messiah? You ever thought that Gentile, that Jericho harlot, Rahab, would have ever imagined inconceivably in her mind that God would ever use her as a person in the royal line of the Savior of the world? Ruth, that Moabitess, Bathsheba, that co-conspirator. But God said, yeah, that's exactly who I want. That's exactly who I'm looking for. This morning, we're going to conclude our service by taking the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is designed to remind us of God's love for us, of Jesus' love for us, that he loved us so much that he was willing to give his own life. And who was he willing to give his own life for? Everybody. No matter what position in life. But who is most likely to respond to it? People like you and me. Just ordinary people. We may not have strings of degrees behind our name. And if if you do, then God still loves you too. And he died for you too. We may not have a big stock portfolio. And you might. And if so, God still loves you too. But see, so many here today might be wrestling with this idea that you're a nobody. Oh, don't, don't swallow that. That lie comes from the pit of hell. I'm nobody. I don't have a... Don't, in Christ, you are everything. You are exactly... You'd be in that line, that royal line leading to the birth of Messiah if you lived in that day. Now, we are made great not because we're wise, no, we're lowly, not because we're rich, but because of what Jesus did for us. Our deacons, our elders, our ushers are going to come forward and we're going to receive first a cracker, put it on your lap, and then take a cup and pass it to your, your neighbor and wait till everyone's received and we'll, we'll all partake together. As they pass out the elements, if you're a believer today, you've trusted Jesus Christ. Let me invite you right now to just spend a moment with him after you you have your element and, and just thank him that you're exactly the kind of man that he's looking for. Thank him that you're exactly the kind of woman. Thank him that, that he lifts up the lowly and the proud is who he resists, not the sinners, the proud. But if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I want you to understand this, that no matter what your life circumstances are, no matter what your behavior in life has been, you're exactly the kind of man, you're exactly the kind of woman that Jesus died on the cross to save. And right now, He'd like to save you. He'd like to forgive you. He'd like to give you the promise 
of eternal life with Him. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed on His name, He gave the right to become children of God. You know what that means? That means to the lowly, to anybody, no matter what. No matter what your circumstances, whether they're great or lowly. If you'll just receive Him. If you'll transfer all confidence off of your own goodness and off of any denomination or any acts of mercy or generosity. If you just say, none of that counts for what we're talking about right now. It's good and it counts for eternal rewards, but not for salvation. Said, if you'll receive him, Jesus Christ, and believe on his name, you know what it says? He says, he'll adopt you into his family. You will actually become a child of the omnipotent God. John chapter 5, verse 24 says, I tell you the truth. This is Jesus talking. Whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Have you ever crossed over from death to life through faith in Jesus Christ? If not, God brought you here today to offer you that gift. And it is a gift. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you've never received him, wouldn't you do it right now? Say, well, how do I do it? Just believe Say, God, I get it. I know I'm a sinner. God, I know that I haven't lived always the life that you would have wanted me to live. I I know I've offended you. And I need your forgiveness, God. God, I do want to go to heaven. And so I'm going to do what, what these verses have said today. Today, God, before you, I confess that I believe Jesus Christ is your son. And Jesus, before you, I confess that that you died on the cross for sin. And because only you were a worthy sacrifice, God has given you alone the, the authority to forgive my sin. And Jesus, I'm asking for that gift of forgiveness right now. Jesus, today, I put aside any hope for any other way to get back to God, to get to heaven than through you. Today, I believe on your name, Jesus, and you alone as my personal Savior. Today, I believe in the name of the Son of God for eternal life. Now the Bible says in 1 John 5, 13, These things I write to you who believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I I can never get over how easy God has made that. But it wasn't easy for him. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. He wanted His disciples to know that. And He wanted to give us as a church through them an ordinance, a ceremony, that we might partake of frequently so that we never forget that love. And so, on the night of his betrayal, Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he passed it to his disciples, and he said, This is my body broken for you. As often as you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. After the same manner, Jesus took the cup. 
And when he had given thanks, he passed it to his disciples. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Then again, Paul, that great apostle, reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Father, we have done as you have asked, as you have led Jesus to share with us. And Jesus, we have taken this, this communion, this Lord's Supper, in honor of you and in remembrance of your love. Thank you for loving us. And thank you that you didn't come just to look at the rich and the famous and all the rest of the world just weren't important to you, but in fact, you just flipped that coin over. And it was the lowly of the world that you brought into your amazing plan. And it's still the lowly of the world that you will use for your glory. God, use us for your glory. Use our lives. Use our service. Use our testimony about your place in our life. And now use our gifts, our tithes, our offerings, our missions giving. Use those gifts. And multiply them like you did the loaves and fishes, Jesus so that their impact can reach hundreds and thousands of people around the world. We give you our gifts now because we love you and because we know that you have given us a directive to support the advancement of your kingdom on earth. So we do so in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.